God bless you all. It is wonderful to see you here tonight as we uh, launch into session two of our series, Understanding Bible Prophecy. Last week we got rolling and I introduced you to a concept, or maybe I introduced some of you to a concept uh, that perhaps you were not familiar with called dispensationalism. And the idea there, it's a, uh, it's a theological system, it's a hermeneutic, which is to say it's a way to interpret the Bible literally. And so the, the, how that works in what we discussed last week is that there are some key characteristics of that approach. You begin by taking the Bible at face value because the Bible says what it says, it means what it means, and so you read it like you would read any other document. And then when you get to figurative language, when you get to symbolic language, you use this wonderful thing that God gave you called a brain. And you just, you just understand what the Bible uh, offers when it, when it uh, produces some figurative language. The other characteristic that it has is there is a recognized distinction between Israel and the church. And you've got to understand that. If you don't have a grasp on the differences between Israel and the church, you're going to be as confused as a termite in a yo-yo about a whole lot of prophecy that we're going to study in this series. And then the last primary characteristic of dispensationalism is that the paramount purpose of God in all of human history is his glory. And when you understand that, a lot more is going to make sense uh, when you read your Bible. Uh, but, but dispensationalism, it refers to dispensations or ages of time because the notion there is that uh, there are various ages throughout human history by which God governs man in a very particular way. And each of those ages uh, is marked by, by some distinctions. One is in every age there is a command of God. Do this or don't do this. It's a command. In every age, there is an inevitable disobedience by man. Man will always disregard or disobey what God has commanded. It is just bound to happen because we are sinful people. And then the third thing is that because God is just, when we disobey, there is justice. There is a judgment, a discipline of man. And then God changes the rules and starts a brand new dispensation. But throughout, salvation is always represented in the same way by faith in the mercy of God through sacrifice. And so we looked at the various ages last week. And and I point out that there are uh, seven ages in human history that are obvious from Scripture. We talked about the first age, innocence. There in the garden, man was created perfect. God governed him by that. And then you had the age of conscience, represented by the knowledge of good and evil that man now has after sinning. And then there's the age of government, where God says, I'm not going to govern you. You're going to govern yourselves according to this new innate moral sense that you have and everything. And then after that, you've got the age of... uh, You've got the age of, uh, of promise, and the age of promise is where God says, I'm not going to govern all of mankind. I'm going to govern one people that I'm going to create, and he makes a covenant with that people. And then, of course, there's the age of law where he says, you seem to be having trouble with what I'm telling you. Let me write it down for you on these stone tablets, and you obey this. Listen to my prophets. And then we've got the age of grace. Because man has rejected God's law and the Savior came, they put him to death. And so now that grace is extended to all. Uh, I'm thankful for that. Are you thankful for that? 
the age of grace, or, or the church age, as we call it. And that, of course, is the age that we are now in. And there is one more age yet to come in human history, and it is, of course, uh, the age of the kingdom, or the millennial age. And so uh, that is yet to come, and we're excited about that. We're going we're gonna to let that underline uh, our study, uh, understanding Bible prophecy. A lot of it is going to come handy tonight as we study some of these concepts, uh, and I hope that you'll find it very helpful. But there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible, and one of the books that is so key to understanding the prophecy of the Bible is the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel. Uh, it is impossible to really get your head around God's plan for mankind unless you have a grasp on the book of Daniel. If you hope to understand Revelation, good luck. You're not going to get Revelation if you don't get Daniel. And so tonight, we're going to look at that. And what I want you to see right off the top in your notes, and by the way, if you're following along in the notes that, uh, that, that we offer online, you might just want to refresh your screen. We've had a few uh, internet issues today, and so that will update those notes for you. But the first point in your notes is that the book of Daniel contains information about the key players and the time sequence of the earth's last days. And so it, it offers some insights that a, that a book like Revelation will actually expand upon. And that's, that's a good way to think of Revelation as an expansion upon the book of Daniel. And so I'm going to explain all of that tonight. Now, when we interpret Scripture, a key rule of thumb is that normally you would say that we interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And the reason for that is we've got more revelation now. Are, are there things that have been revealed to us in the New Testament that were a total mystery in the Old Testament? Is that true? Did we know the name of Jesus in the Old Testament? We did not, right? Uh, did we know what the church was in the Old Testament? No. And so there is a fullness of revelation. It's a progressive revelation. And so a lot of people would say, you read the Old Testament through the lens of the New and it makes more sense. And I agree with that. There is one caveat and it's in the area of Bible prophecy. Because there are some prophetic passages in the New Testament that you must read through the lens of the Old Testament prophets. They're going to help you unlock that, and that's why Daniel is so important. And so we're going to look at a key prophecy from the book of Daniel tonight. We're going to build on that by looking at another prophecy from Daniel next week. And then in the weeks to come, there's at least one more major, major prophecy from Daniel that we're going to unpack. But tonight, I'm not going to start in Daniel. I'm going to spend most of my time there, but I'm going to start in the New Testament. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 21, verse 6. And this is, these are the words of Christ. And, and where he is right here, he's with the disciples. They're in the vicinity of the Temple Mount. And people are talking about how, how beautiful the temple is and how extravagant and how well adorned with precious stones and all of the wonderful offerings there. And Jesus says this, verse 6, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's saying the day will come when you look at this temple right here. You see all these stones uh, that, that, that comprise this magnificent structure. There's coming a day where not one of those stones is going to be on top of another. They will all be cast down. And when he says this, the Jews around him flip out. They just freak. The religious elites, they react because they think this is some sort of a veiled threat. 
by Christ, that he's, he's threatening to destroy the temple. Well, that's not at all what he's doing. He's not planning an attack. He's merely prophesying what is going to come to pass regarding this temple and this city. He's prophesying its destruction. It won't be him who does it. It's going to be somebody else. And this is going to happen well after the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, he states this as well in Matthew 24. Uh, and it foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. Does that come to pass? Yes, indeed it did. In history, from our vantage point, we can look back and see when that prophecy was fulfilled. And it's the Romans. They're going to march into Jerusalem. They're going to lay waste to that city. They're going to utterly demolish that temple. And in fact, not one stone would be on top of another. They would kill many, many Jews. They would disperse the rest of them. And if you go to Jerusalem today and you visit the Temple Mount, there is no temple on that mount. It is gone, thanks to Rome. Uh, and if you go south from Jerusalem, and hopefully one of these days I'll take a group of you and we'll go out there and we'll see for ourselves, and we will go south of Jerusalem to a place called Masada, which was a mountain fortress. It was built by Herod the Great. And after the Jerusalem destruction in A.D. 70 by Rome, many Jews fled Jerusalem. They went to this mountain fortress called Masada, and they holed up there because it was a highly defensible place. And they sought refuge there from Rome. Rome laid siege to Masada, could not get at the, the Jews for many, many days. Finally, they broke through that wall. And what did they find? Sadly, they found every single Jew that had taken refuge at Masada had taken their life. And so it's a very somber place and rather inspiring when you consider the perspective of the Jewish people. Uh, but what that does that historical account shows us how Jesus' prophecy would unfold. And if you look ahead in Luke 21, you go all the way down to verse 24, Jesus continues on with this prophecy and he says, they, the Jewish people, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until... The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And if you have your Bible in your lap, I would like you to underline that phrase, the times of the Gentiles. Okay, what does that phrase, the times of the Gentiles, refer to? That's what we're talking about tonight. In your notes, the times of the Gentiles refers to an era of Gentile dominion over Israel. Okay, this is a period of time when, when Jerusalem, when the nation of Israel will be in bondage to some degree. They will be persecuted by the Gentile world power. And I want you to understand something, that that is still going on today. And Christ prophesied this. And he was, pro he was talking about A.D. 70. Now, it was already going on in Christ's day. The times of the Gentile persecution of Israel was already underway when Jesus said these words, but it would really kick into a new gear when AD 70 came along. Because when the Jews were cast out of the land, they would not return to the land until the early 20th century. Now, are they in the land today? Are there Jews in Israel today? Yes, there are. Are they recognized as a sovereign nation around the world? For the most part, yes, they are recognized as a sovereign nation. Is the time of Gentile subjugation of the Jews still going on today? Yes, it is. 
You say, well, how can that be? If they're in the land and they're recognized as a nation, then how can they be under persecution by the Gentile world power? Let me explain something to you. Uh, The Jews of Israel today do not have access to the land that they were promised in the way that they were promised. God's covenant with Abraham describes uh, a, a piece of real estate that is much larger than what is occupied by present day Israel. Furthermore, today, Israel is surrounded by many Gentile nations, most of them Arab, most of them that hate Israel, that would love nothing more than to see Israel wiped off the map. That would make Iran very happy. That would make Syria very happy. That would make the various terrorist groups in that part of the world, uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, uh, what have you, that would make them thrilled to have Israel obliterated. But this, this period of, of persecution called the Times of the Gentiles, it didn't start in A.D. 70. It began, in your notes, with the Babylonian captivity, and it's going to end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that is the period that I'm going to talk to you about tonight. Because Israel right now, presently, does not dwell in her land in peace. They are constantly in danger of attack. Uh, You hear about it periodically in the news that there's an explosion, there's some sort of a a bomb that has gone off, there's an attack here or there and Jews have lost their lives. There is constant conflict, there is pressure at all times on Israel to to make peace at all costs. They bend over backward, they they, they surrender land, they give up in the name of peace various pieces of real estate. In the middle of the old city is the Temple Mount where once their temple stood. That is the holiest site in all of Judaism and yet if, you, or I, if you, or you and I were to go there as tourists, American tourists, we could go up on that Temple Mount, but no religious Israeli Jew would be allowed up on that mount. And even as tourists, if you're not a Muslim, you can only go up there for a certain amount of hours and only so many days a week, you see. But no Israelis uh, that are Jewish, that are religious, are allowed to go up there, even though their own nation controls that Temple Mount. They have since 1967, since the Six Days War. And yet what they've done is they've allowed the Arabs to run that Temple Mount. Why? Can't really say. I would presume it has something to do uh, with peace and trying to maintain peace. They could have done whatever they wanted with that piece of land after they took control of it. But I would say this, if they had, if they had occupied the Temple Mount back in 1967, there would be a lot of pressure on them to rebuild their temple. And you know what I think about that? I think that God has not ordained that to happen yet because it is not the right moment on the prophetic timetable for a temple to sit once again atop that mount. And so all that to say, Israel is currently uh, under subjugation by a Gentile world power. We are living in the times of the Gentiles right now. And that is the subject of our discussion this evening. And it's going to get really good. I want to show you a really cool prophecy from Daniel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just ask your blessing upon our time in your word. I, I am so in awe uh, that 40% of this book, the Bible, is predictive prophecy, and I believe that you put it there for a reason. I believe that you want us to seek to understand it, God, because it is part of the canon of Scripture, and you've given us your Holy Spirit, and you've given us the greatest commentary on the Bible, which is the Bible itself. Would you help us to use it? 
Would you give us wisdom tonight as we do so? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So I, I want to start off by asking, what is the theme of this chapter? We're in Daniel chapter 2, if you're following along. And I, I encourage you to do that if you've got your Bibles. Daniel chapter 2. And in your notes, the theme of Daniel 2 is, is all about God transferring the leadership of the earth from Israel to the Gentiles. Okay? God transferring the leadership of the earth to the Gentiles. You may be thinking to yourself, was Israel ever the leader of the earth? Well, what was God's plan for them? If you recall the whole Tower of Babel episode... Uh, what was that all about? God said, I'm not going to govern all peoples. I'm going to create one people. And he starts with one guy named Abram, later Abraham. And he says, through you, through your descendants will come a a mighty nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. But the, the idea here is that they would be his people. They would model his righteousness to the world. And then the world would follow suit. They would watch Abraham's descendants model God's ways, and then they would be governed by Israel's example. In that way, they would lead the world. Okay? How'd that work out? Didn't work out. Because over time, even though Abraham was faithful, even though his descendants, many of them were faithful, generations came along that were not. Okay? And if you recall... Uh, by the time Joseph ends up in, in uh, Egypt and then that, the family of Joseph goes down there, they, they participate in, in idolatry. And so they succumb to the ways of the world. Ezekiel 21 tells us that the glory had departed from Israel. God wrote Ichabod over that nation, which Ichabod means the glory has departed. And so in your notes... Uh, The divine ideal for Israel is that the incarnate Son of God would come and reign in Jerusalem. But because of their idolatry, God chose to remove them from the land. You see, if Israel had, had followed suit, if they had been obedient, the king that they longed for would have come. And he would have he would have assumed his throne right there in Jerusalem. They'd have a king in the land. But They weren't faithful. And so God allowed them to be subjugated. Now, how did that unfold? I want to unpack that for you. I want to give you, I'm going to give you a jet tour before we go any further on on the history of Israel. Abraham's descendants end up in Egypt, right? You got Joseph down there. He's been betrayed by his brothers. There's famine. His brothers come down there to get food. They end up staying. While they're there, as I said, they begin to worship idols, So God says, you like Egypt? Fine. Stick around. You'll be under bondage in Egypt. 430 years. They're down there. God raises up eventually a guy named Moses. Moses liberates the Israelites. They cross the Red Sea. You've seen the movie. And they wander in the desert for how long? 40 years. Then Moses dies. And so now they've got a new leader, Joshua. Joshua takes over, leads them into the promised land. And they begin to conquer. God says, this is your land, all right? Kick tail, take names. And so that's what they do. They start conquering cities. Then Joshua dies. Well, then the people, they just stop conquering. They stop taking what God said is theirs. They give up and they wring their hands. They're without a leader. And so 
We have a book in your Bible called Judges, and it says in Judges that there they are in the land, they've got no leader, and everyone just did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And what did they think was right? Well, they took their cues from the Canaanite pagan peoples around them, and they started worshiping idols. And when God saw that, he allowed uh, foreign entities to invade them and, uh, and, and start to subdue them. The Philistines and the Amorites and the Hittites and all these people. And when that would happen, then the Israelites would cry out to God again. They'd say, help us. And God would hear their cry because they would repent. And he would send them a deliverer. And these deliverers that God would send are called judges. That's the name of the book. And so you'd have guys like Samson. And you'd have guys like, uh, like uh, Gideon and uh, Barak. Okay, and Jephthah and people like that. And they would come in, they would deliver them from these uh, 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 peoples that would subdue them and they would come back to God for a time and then they would start to worship idols again. And so this cycle would repeat throughout that period of time. And finally, after a long pattern of this, God sends them their final judge who also happened to be the first prophet. And his name was Samuel. Samuel. And so Samuel is there, and the people start to complain to Samuel, and they say, we want a king. Give us a king. He says, you don't need a king. God is your king. They said, we want a king. Philistines have a king. Ai's got a king. The Hittites got a king. Uh, The Amorites got a king. The termites got a king. God says, Samuel, give him a king. He says, but you're their king. Nope. I've decided, let them have what they want. I'm going to give them the king they deserve. Oh, you don't ever want what you deserve. You don't want that. So they get a king, and they choose their king. They select a guy, and the first king is Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin. You know why they picked him? He was tall and handsome. Let me tell you something. Never trust the tall guy. All right? You heard it here first, all right? I'm just kidding. Listen, no, Saul, Saul had all he needed to be successful. He did. He had the anointing of God. He had the good favor of the people. Uh, but he made some mistakes. He disobeyed God. He disobeyed God's prophet, Samuel. And so as a result, God cursed Saul. He said, you, you are done. I'm done with you. And your descendants will not attain to the throne. And he replaced him with a little shepherd boy by the name of David. You know David, greatest king Israel ever had. Uh, we love the stories of David. Wonderful king. For the most part, he too made some mistakes, had an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba, and uh, he, he orchestrated the death of Bathsheba's husband. And for that, God said, you will not see the temple completed. It will be your son who completes the temple. What was his son's name? Solomon. So Solomon comes in. And so there you've got the first three kings And those are the only kings the unified kingdom of Israel would ever have. That's it. Three kings. That kingdom after Solomon would, they would split. Now you got two kingdoms. You got a northern kingdom. You got a southern kingdom. Why did they split? Because Solomon, he did some bad stuff too. He married a whole slew of women. And you know what? When you get married, you pick up on some of the habits of your wife. Uh, For example, when I got married... Uh, before I got married, I always jumped right out of bed when my alarm clock went off. But my wife likes the snooze button. And so now I like the snooze button. 
all right? Well, Solomon didn't have one wife. He had hundreds of wives. And so he started to uh, adopt some of their interests. And what were their interests? Idolatry. And so Solomon began to build altars to their gods, and that split the kingdom into northern and southern. Now, I want to show you on the screen here what the northern kingdom looked like. You've got ten tribes, ten tribes. We have, there they are, okay. And you remember there were originally twelve, twelve tribes in Israel. Well, these ten went north. you got Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Dan, Gad, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Reuben. And all of them went north. They went to a place called Samaria, and that's where their capital was. And they were later conquered by the nation, the empire of Assyria. Let me show you the southern kingdom. These are the, the others that stayed in Jerusalem. When it was unified, they stayed down, and they were called the kingdom of Judah. So the northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was made of two, of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they became the tribe uh, or the, the kingdom of Judah. You also had a remnant from the north that were faithful to the house of David, and they came down, and they weren't interested in the northern kingdom. So they came down. So Judah, Benjamin, and whatever remnant of the ten northern tribes made up the kingdom of Judah. They were in Jerusalem, and they also later were were conquered. But uh, what happened is the northern kingdom got into idolatry as well, and God said, I'm done with you. He let Assyria come in. They conquered them, and they are no more. You can't find any of those tribes. Uh, uh, today. Well, the southern kingdom were a little more faithful for a time, but they, they, they got messed up too, and they disobeyed God. And we read about it throughout Jeremiah. He tried to warn them God's going to bring in uh, another power, but they didn't listen. And sure enough, here comes Babylon. And this is where what Christ referred to began. The times of the Gentiles. You had a Babylonian general, a young guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the son of, he was the heir to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes in, just demolishes Jerusalem in 605 B.C. And he, he destroys the temple. This is Solomon's temple, the most glorious temple from which the glory had departed, the Shekinah glory of God. And he, he absconds with the temple vessels and all of the riches and, and material things that adorned that beautiful building. And then he has an idea. He, he decides he's going to take the Hebrews that are still alive, that have, he hasn't killed yet, and he's going to exile them in Babylon. He's going to put them in a concentration camp. So you see, this was happening to the Jews well before Hitler. So he put them in a camp. But then he said, I want the choicest, most impressive, strapping young men, the finest Hebrew boys in the land, I want to take them, I want them to serve me in my court, and I'm going to educate them according to the ways of Babylon, and I'm going to make good Babylonians out of them. And so among those guys, there is a young man by the name of Daniel. And, and Daniel had three buddies, and Daniel's friends... Uh, uh, if you recall, were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might know their Babylonian names better. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Or if you liked VeggieTales, uh, Rakshak and Benny, okay? <laughs> and so they're down there, and they're, they're in the, the, uh, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar youth program, uh, being molded into fine Babylonians. 
but they stay faithful to God. Scripture tells us that. Daniel 1 says that uh, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. They did not partake of any of the fine delicacies of Babylon. They never worshipped a foreign deity. They never compromised themselves or their bodies in any way. They stayed kosher. You understand. And so it says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar clearly saw that among all his selected servants, there was none that could equal Daniel or his friends. And he found them ten times better than all his magicians and astrologers in his realm. All right? So that's where we start. So look at Daniel 2 in verse 1. Here's what it says. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and sleep left him. And then the king commanded that all the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then verse 4, it says, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. And if you're following along in your Bible, I would like you to underline the word Aramaic. Aramaic. I'll explain why in a moment. Just make a little note there, put a star by it, whatever. They said to him, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Now, off to the side there in your margin, in your Bible, you've marked the word Aramaic. I want you to jot down Daniel 7.28. Daniel 7.28, okay? And if you, you don't have your Bibles with you, I would just put it on your outline, okay? And I'll come back to that. So, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's got this dream, freaks him out, wakes him up in the middle of the night, can't go back to sleep. Ever happen to you? You have dreams, right? My, my daughter, Everly, she's seven years old. I remember when she was born, uh, sweetest little squishy thing. I took her home from the hospital. I was just obsessed with this baby girl. And I remember holding her in my arms on the sofa. The World Series was on. I distinctly remember that. And uh, she was kind of falling asleep, and I started to sing to her. And because her name is Everly, I thought I would sing to her a song by the Everly Brothers. You guys remember the Everly Brothers? Now, what was her big hit from 1958? Dream, 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 dream. You remember that? All, all I have to do is dream. Do you know that to this day that is her favorite song? That is her favorite song. We sing it at bedtime. We've been to more than... More than a couple daddy-daughter dances where I've requested that song and we've danced to that song and she just lights up. And I promise you one day at her wedding we will dance to that song. Okay? That is not what Nebuchadnezzar was experiencing. <laughs> this was not something sweet. This was not the Everly Brothers. This was Metallica. Okay? This was Enter Sandman or, you know, Dream On by Aerosmith or something like that. And he was terrified. And so these astrologers, these, these counselors, they come to him. Now the Bible says they're, they're magicians, uh, they're enchanters, sorcerers. Uh, these guys were, what they were is they were, they were diviners, they were necromancers, okay, um, uh, they were specifically trained to use incantations, contact the dead, tap into the demonic to decipher things. And so they say, tell us the dream. Just tell us the dream. Nebuchadnezzar's got another idea. Verse 5, the king answered, said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb 
and your house shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. No pressure, right? Verse 7, they answered a second time. They said, let, let, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time. Because you see the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Why doesn't he want to tell them the dream first? In your notes, because he is desperate to make sure the interpretation was authentic. He wants to know the truth. Anybody can just make up an interpretation, right? Tell me your dream, I'll tell you what it means. Would you trust somebody who said that? But if you say, you tell me what I dreamed, and then I'll trust you when you tell me what it means. Because if they could tell you what you dreamed without you divulging that, they must know something, right? And so a mere interpretation will not serve his purpose. He's not going to take a chance on being manipulated. So these guys are in a no-win situation. If they open their mouths, take a stab at this, they're going to be exposed as frauds, and he's going to execute them. So they try to say, you know, this is a rare request, O king, and, you know, only the gods can know what the dream is. They're, they're trying their best to convince him. He just gets mad, flies into a rage, and he decrees he's going to kill all the wise men of the kingdom, which is a problem, because who does that include? Look at verse 13. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them, you see. And so in your notes, Nebuchadnezzar's decree that all the wise men of Babylon to be executed, that includes Daniel and his companions. And so naturally, Daniel hears about this, and he's a little alarmed. And so he seeks an audience with the king, and he asks for more time in order to give him an answer. And he goes back to the other three. He says, Rack, Shaq, Benny, listen we got to pray. And so they hit their knees. Wouldn't you? I'd be praying like a fool, man. And so verse 19 tells us what happens. Verse 19 tells us that the mystery was revealed. As they prayed, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So God gives Daniel the dream. And I presume the interpretation Right there. And there's a beautiful prayer of thanks. We read in verse 20. It says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, uh, to whom belong wisdom and might. And then check this out. Very important. Verse 20. He, God, changes times and seasons. And I would underline this phrase. He removes kings and sets up kings. That is a very important phrase for our study tonight because that is key to our passage. Daniel finally comes before the king. And in verse 27, he says, he says this, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. You ever heard that term, the latter days? Well, you think some of you might be thinking of... Uh, of the Mormons, right? Latter-day Saints. Well, that's a biblical term. The Mormons are not biblical, but that term is. What does it mean in your notes? It means a time future to their own, perhaps even 
the end times. That's what latter days actually means biblically. Uh, this is not a phrase that is restricted to Nebuchadnezzar's lifetime. Uh, here's what's interesting about that phrase, latter days. In the original language here, the word latter there is an Aramaic word. Okay? Most of the Old Testament is, is in Hebrew. This word is in Aramaic, and the word is chayrith. Achairith, and it means end. It means end. The next word after that word is not Aramaic, it's Hebrew. And it means yom, or it says, the word is yom. What does that mean? It means day. If you read Genesis and you study Genesis, you're going to see that word yom. We're going to, we're going to jump into Genesis in the fall, and I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about that word yom. It means day. It means the end days, latter days, last days. If this was Greek, it'd be the word eschatos, from which we get eschatology, which is a lot of what we're talking about in this series, the study of last things. Well, in Daniel 2.29, he says, To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. So according to Daniel in, in this verse, 2.29, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in your notes is to give a glimpse of the future. What will be after this? What is to be. So we're getting, this is a prophetic dream. So now we're going to, he's going to tell the king the dream. That's a request, right? You tell me what I dreamed. Here he goes. Verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was a fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And you can just see Nebuchadnezzar's jaw drop to the floor because what Daniel is describing is exactly what he dreamed. Now, Daniel refers to a great image. What does that mean? In your notes, a great image refers to an immense statue of the human form. It's going to be in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar is going to construct such a statue. It will be called an image. Uh, The word here for for image translates as statue. And we see that it's composed, in your notes, of various metals in sections. Okay? you got a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet partly iron and partly clay. Now, what do you notice about those metals as you progress downward from the top? What do you notice about them? Well, here's what I notice. In your notes, they deteriorate in quality, in weight. Okay, The image is it's, it's obviously top-heavy. It's very weak in the feet. If you think about these metals, what's the heaviest metal? It's gold, right? I used to take my kids up to a little gold 
mining town in California called Columbia. They got an, that's where High Noon was filmed in Columbia, California. They got this Old West street, you know, with all these general stores and saloons and all that. And then you can do the touristy thing and you can go and pan for gold. And as you got this little metal pan and the water's coming down, you scoop it in the rock and then you shift it to one side and, and all the worthless rock goes to one side. But if, if you got gold and you could find gold, it would stick because it was heavy. And so the numeric weight of gold is, is, is the number 19. Silver has a numeric weight of 11. Bronze has a numeric weight of 8.5 and iron has a numeric weight of 7.8. So they decrease in quality and in weight. And then you see a stone that is cut out by no human hand there in the dream, and it strikes that image, and all the metals are shattered, and they become fine, like chaff. He says, what is chaff? Well, biblically, in your notes, what does chaff represent? It represents worthlessness. Chaff is the dry, scaly, protective casing uh, of seeds in, in cereal grains um, or, or, or similar plant material, and it's separated. You have to separate the chaff from the seed when you are threshing, and it's, it's, it's of no use to anybody. You can't eat it, <laughs> and uh, it's of no uh, other use. It's just usually plowed into the ground, or it's burned, or, or, or the wind carries it away, like, like is done here with what remains of this destroyed statue. So that's the dream. Now... We're going to get the interpretation. But before we dive into the interpretation, in your notes, Nebuchadnezzar's dream contains images symbolic of five kingdoms. Five kingdoms. We're going to look at five kingdoms represented by this dream. And we start in verse 36 because uh, this is is, uh, how he interprets what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed. He says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, interesting term, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. I want you to underline given. The power and the might and the glory and into whose hand he has given, underline given again. Wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. And so in your notes, the head of gold is Babylon. That's the first kingdom. The dream that God has given Nebuchadnezzar that that Daniel interprets has to do with the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms, world empires, and it starts with the one that is presently in place at Daniel's time, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's own kingdom. What do we know about Babylon? They were uh, on the scene there from... 612 to 539 BC, not a terribly long time in the scope of history. Uh, The kingdom is personified in its ruler. Daniel says, you, O king, are the head of gold. So really, Babylon is, in the eyes of God, synonymous with Nebuchadnezzar himself. All begins with this man. And so when Jesus talks about the times of the Gentiles, when did that start? Started with this man, Nebuchadnezzar. And notice that it says God gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory. God's put it in your hand. God made you ruler. God has chosen Nebuchadnezzar for such a time as this. And if he had not, Nebuchadnezzar would not be in power. So you've got this pagan, heathen king 
And he is there because God has allowed him to be there. And in fact, ordained him to be there. Isn't that interesting? Do you remember Pilate saying to Jesus in the Gospels? He says to him, when Jesus is brought before him, he goes, you understand that I have the power to condemn you and I have the power to set you free. What does Jesus say? He says, no, you don't. Nope. Nope, you'd have no power except that my Father in heaven gave it to you. That's where power comes from. And God has given Nebuchadnezzar power. And not only would he not have power apart from God, but God gave him power in order that Nebuchadnezzar might accomplish the purpose of God. Think about that. Uh, 1 Chronicles 6.15 talks about the history of Israel. It says, The Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord did that. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, before this event even happened, before anybody had ever heard of Nebuchadnezzar, in Jeremiah 25, 9, he says, Behold, this is God speaking through his prophet, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. What? My servant? This is a pagan, polytheistic king. And yet God has ordained him to accomplish the purposes of Yahweh, the one true God. Interesting. And so in your notes, this demonstrates that God sovereignly grants authority to all earthly powers for his purposes. What did, what did Daniel already say? God sets up kings and he removes Kings. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Sometimes we get a little freaked out about who's in charge, right? Some people freaked out when Trump got elected. Some people freaked out when Biden got elected. I'm still a little freaked out about that, but... <laughs> I would say that it is perfectly appropriate to have concern for the way your nation is being governed so long as you understand who's ultimately in authority. Amen? God is sovereign, so don't be worried, okay? Be who you're called to be in the world, in society. Make a difference. Be salt, be light, but don't worry because God's in charge. I've, and, and when God's done with that ruler, he will remove him. I've heard the morning of June 18th, 1815, Napoleon was conferring with his general about tactics for the day, and he told him what the infantry should do, and then he, he said this to his general. He said, by tonight, Wellington will be in our power. And his general just kind of casually said, well, man proposes, but God disposes. <laughs> Napoleon didn't like that. And he pointed a finger at him. He says, Napoleon proposes, and Napoleon disposes. You should know that the battle that day was the Battle of Waterloo. And if you know anything about Waterloo, you know that unforeseen, horrific, stormy weather rendered Napoleon's uh, uh, offensive maneuvers ineffective, and he lost the day. And that was his final defeat, and the world never heard from him again. So, God's in control. Amen? Amen. All right, so... It says in verse 39, then, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. We've already said, as you go down this statue, these metals get inferior. They get, they get weaker. And so Daniel says as much. Another kingdom inferior to you will arise 
after you, and this is kingdom number two in your notes, the chest and arms of silver, and it's the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. Now, this is a kingdom future to Daniel. It is history to you and I. This is already part of human history. We know that the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. What do we know about them? Uh, They lasted from 538 to 331 BC, so they were on the scene longer than Babylon. So you've got uh, chest and arms, two arms. That's significant. What do those arms represent in your notes? They fit historically because there was, for a time, a co-regency. That means there's two parts to this kingdom. you got the Medes, you got the Persians. Okay? You're going to need to remember that for next week. We're going to revisit some of these kingdoms in a different prophecy. So the Medes and the Persians, it's a co-regency represented by these two arms. And so what's interesting is that God is going to allow this prophet Daniel to see two world empires. Okay, Uh, most people are not going to see one, perhaps, or only one. He's going to see two. It's going to happen over 70 years' worth of time there. But he's already witnessed Babylon come to power. Now he's going to witness, when he's a very, very old man, the Medes and the Persians. And he he will mention them by name in chapter 5, and we'll talk about that later on. But what's going to happen is Nebuchadnezzar will die. And he will be succeeded by his son, Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar is... Nowhere near the man his father was, uh, in ter- militarily and even at the end of his life, because Nebuchadnezzar became a man of faith at the end of his life. It's an amazing story, but not Belshazzar. Belshazzar is more of a party boy, all right? And he throws a banquet for Babylonian noblemen in Daniel chapter 5, and uh, he's got this idea. He wants to do something that he thinks is very clever. It's actually very sacrilegious and very offensive uh, to Jehovah, but he recalls that his father, when he invaded Jerusalem, he, he took off with all of the temple vessels, and they were installed in the various pagan temples of Babylon, and so Belshazzar sends for those vessels, and he has them brought to this party, and they are filled with wine, and he invites his guests to drink wine out of these holy uh, temple vessels from Israel. Can you imagine what an affront to, uh, to the God of, of Israel? And then something happens. It's something very supernatural. A spectral hand materializes and begins to write on the wall, on the plaster of the banquet room. And there is a message now written on the wall. And this is where that phrase comes from, you know, to see the writing on the wall, right? And what does that mean when we say someone saw the writing on the wall? That means it's over. It's over. And so there is writing on the wall. He can't decipher it. Nobody seems to know what's going on there. And so uh, he sends for his usual guys like his dad used to do, and they don't understand what the writing is. And, and then his mother speaks up. And she says, well, you know, your father used to rely on a guy named Daniel. And so he sends for this very aged man, this prophet Daniel. And in Daniel 5... It says, then from his presence the hand was sent, verse 24, and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parsin. And those words are in Aramaic. They're nouns. They describe uh, uh, types of weight or units of, of measurement here. And it says in verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Well, that doesn't sound good. Verse 27, Tekel, 
You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. It doesn't sound so good either. And then verse 28, peres, which is the singular form of parsin. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Well, that's specific. That's very specific. This is not good news. Daniel had already told old Nebuchadnezzar way back with that first dream that he would be succeeded by another kingdom. There would be another kingdom that would arise after his, but he didn't say when. There was no indication as to when that would happen. Well, now it is in the offing, and he's got to tell Nebuchadnezzar's own son, it's going to happen on your watch, Belshazzar, and it's going to be quick, and it's going to be the Medes and the Persians. And we read... In verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. When God's ready to make a change, he doesn't mess around. He doesn't mess around. And so we're going to talk about Persia a little more uh, next week. But we, we know that this kingdom is inferior to Babylon. Silver is inferior to gold. Um, this 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 empire is maybe less stable at its core, but it's a larger empire, so it covers more territory, you understand? Uh, I would say Babylon would be like the jelly donuts on Church Street, and Persia would be like Duncan, okay? So much, much bigger, inferior in quality. Anyway. We read on, it says, And yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. So here's the third kingdom. We're going to move on from Persia. And in your notes, the belly and thighs of bronze is the kingdom of Greece. Greece. Uh, The Greek empire lasted from uh, 330 to 150 B.C. This will be mentioned by name in Daniel 8 and in Daniel 11. I'm not going to talk much about them tonight. We'll be more on them Next week, they figure into prophecy. We'll look at that. Uh, It came into being because of a guy named Alexander the Great. Okay, he's not mentioned by name here, but Daniel is essentially prophesying about Alexander 200 years before he comes on, before he's even born. Um, But we will look uh, at prophecy that concerns him, and it's amazing when we do that, you will see that it, it. it refers to no one but Alexander. It, can, it cannot possibly refer to anyone but Alexander the Great. Okay? And so, moving on in verse 40, it says, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And so, kingdom number four is going to be divided as we'll see, into two parts. There's an A and a B here. So, first in your notes, you've got the legs of iron. What kingdom is represented by the legs of iron? In your notes, it's Rome. It's the Roman Empire. Um, the Greek Empire, Alexander's going to die young. His, his, his kingdom's going to be divided four ways. He's got four generals. Eventually, all of that will give way to this, this new empire of Rome. And Daniel's prophecies just keep coming true. And so, so far, I've talked about a lot of fulfilled prophecy. And some of you may be like, when are we going to get to the stuff that's like end times? Pastor Scott, when are we going to get there? Well, we're going to get there later tonight even. But what I want you to understand is there, there is prophecy in the Bible that has already been fulfilled. And it is no less important than the prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. Because when you look at prophecy that has been fulfilled, it validates Scripture. And if you see that prophecy has actually been fulfilled, you can trust that prophecy yet to be fulfilled will come to fruition. You can trust it. You see. And so that's why we're looking at this. 
And so you've got this kingdom of Rome. It lasts from 150 B.C. all the way to the 5th century A.D. Daniel's going to give more time to the Roman Empire than any of these others combined. It's not mentioned by name. How do we know he's actually talking about Rome? Well, we can observe history. We know that Rome followed Greece in human history chronologically. But we're going to see another vision of Rome in chapter 7 that will solidify this interpretation. But look at these legs. They're legs of what? Iron. So they are strong. Uh, the Roman legions were renowned for their ability to, to crush all resistance with, a, with an iron heel. Uh, the greatest imagery of the Roman Empire is that of destruction. They saw what they wanted, they took it. They took it. it was, they were utterly ruthless, they used violence. The, the Roman military machine was unparalleled. In its day, there was no single civilization that could stand against Rome. They had no rival. And the most prestigious legion in all of the Roman legions was called the uh, Sixth Legion in Latin. It was called the Legio Sexta Ferrata. And that word ferrata, it's got a root, ferro. Okay, if you remember your periodic table from junior high, what's the element F-E? It stands for ferro, which is translated in Latin as iron. Okay, so the Legio Sexta Ferrata, literally the Sixth Iron Legion. Now, where was this legion stationed historically? They had, first of all, they had helmets and shields of iron, and they were sent to garrison Judea. This is the legion that remained in Judea, in Israel, for over 200 years, the Iron Legion. You got these legs on it. There's two legs. You got two legs out here? All right. Two legs. Remember the arms? Persia? the co-regency, in similar fashion, you've got two legs representing Rome because in, in AD 286, one of the uh, emperors, Diocletian, split the Roman Empire administratively, peacefully as well, uh, under the control of two emperors. And so you had an East Empire and a West Empire. And in your notes, the two legs represent the historic division of the Roman Empire. That was in 286 AD. Uh, by 330, you had an emperor named Constantine. Constantine institutionalized that split. He moved the capital of Rome to a new city. Uh, used to be Byzantium. He named it after himself, Constantinople. And eventually, over time, these two halves of the empire just grew weaker and weaker. And so by the late 5th century, the Western Empire eventually just kind of collapsed, just kind of petered out. Uh, the Roman eastern half survived for about a thousand years. It, was called the, it, it morphed into something called the Byzantine Empire. And later that was conquered by the Ottoman Turks. And so Byzantium, Constantinople, same city. It is now in modern day Turkey and it's called Istanbul. Okay? And so there is no Roman Empire today. But what you need to understand is the Roman Empire was never conquered. They just kind of died out. They just kind of fizzled. So they are truly the last global empire in world history. And they're coming back. They're going to make a comeback. Look at verse 41. He says, And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron 
shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron, partly clay, so that the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And so you've got a second part of this fourth kingdom divided by who knows how many years. We don't know. But the first part was never conquered. It's kind of dormant. And it's going to rise again. And so in your notes, the feet of iron and clay is the revived Roman Empire. This is the Roman Empire phase two. Uh, This is yet future for us, okay? Um, This is the first part of Daniel's vision that is eschatological. We're dealing with the end times here. And so it's not just future for Daniel. It's future for you and for me. And this is a, a kingdom that will arise one day in the event called the tribulation. Seven year period of judgment on earth. The presence of iron represents Rome. That is a revived Roman Empire. But there are some differences in its integrity. You see, you got these toes. What do these toes represent? Well, the ten toes represent, in your notes, a confederation of outside nations aligned with this kingdom. Okay? Now, some of you are looking at your text in Daniel, and you're, you're hearing what I'm saying. You're going, I don't, I don't read that in the text, Pastor Scott. Are you, are you kind of imposing that onto the text? You know, I had a teacher when I was in, uh, in school, when I was younger, who, if we couldn't figure out a math problem, they would say, the answer's in the back of the book. The answer's in the back of the book. Well, the, the answer to this question is actually in the back of our book. What's in the back of your book? Book of Revelation. And so it's there that we read in Revelation 17, verse 12, there is a beast that represents the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. And this beast will have ten horns. So Revelation 17, 12 says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. This means that the Antichrist, during the tribulation, will lead a coalition, a coalition of ten nations. It's going to be a ten-nation confederation. I submit to you that the ten horns of Revelation that represent ten nations are the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. Okay? And these are nations outside of Rome, but they align with Rome. And they appear to be completely brainwashed. They just sort of hand over their sovereignty to the Antichrist. And so what we're seeing here in this section of Nebuchadnezzar's vision is a, uh, uh, the geopolitical f- future... Of planet Earth. All right? Uh, how will this confederation come about? I don't know. Perhaps it will be that in our future, our globe will be divided into 10 sections, 10 zones, maybe, uh, regions that each answers to a central authority and, and dominates the world in that way. Uh, today, we've got the European Union. European Union had originally there were 28. It's kind of some of them have peeled off. I don't know exactly how many are there now, but it's becoming weaker. Some have proposed maybe more of those nations are going to peel off until it's whittled down to 10. That's one theory that's out there. Uh, right now, there are 15 members of the UN Security Council. 
Uh, five of them are permanent. The U.S. is one of the five. Ten are voted on every two years. Some have noted that the headquarters uh, of the Catholic Church are in Rome, and so they've tried to make that connection that there's going to be these, these bodies of power and they're going to align with the Catholic Church. Look, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of theories. There's a lot of ways this could work out. I'm not really interested in, in uh, posting warnings about how this will come to be, you know, on social media about every geopolitical uh, development. I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in it. When people get all worked up and they're like, look, 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 there was a treaty between blah, blah, blah. I don't really, I don't really worry about all of that stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't think it's my job to let people know, hey, you know, so-and-so is yoking up with Beelzebub. Keep an eye on that guy. Um, but understand, these nations will form. They will form. Geopolitical situations can change on a dime. Is that true? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. There are some strange bedfellows in the world today. You know, Russia, China. Didn't see that coming, right? Iran, what? I mean, there are people that have nothing in common. There are different cultures, different ethnicities, different religions. But somehow, they, bring, they come together. And so this can all happen, you know? Um, you know, during the pandemic, people were all wigged out about, you know, are we going to be required to take this vaccine and we, we won't be able to do business if we don't take the vaccine. And so they're, you know, and they were coming to me, are we, are we in the last days? Is, that, is this the mark of the beast, Pastor Scott? Uh, you know, I told him, no, it's not the mark of the beast. But what, what it shows you is that our public perception of things can change very quickly and we can be made to comply very quickly and so I see a lot of the things around the world as sort of laying groundwork for big changes one day according to the timetable of God it's not our job to predict when this is going to happen you understand and so we go on in verse 43 prophet says and you saw the iron mix with soft clay so they will mix with one another in marriage but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. What, 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 what does this clay represent in your notes? It represents instability because of the many human factions aligned under one banner, okay? Instability. Uh, the bigger the kingdom, the weaker it is, the less, uh, 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 the less stable it is. There's not a lot of structure to it and you got multiple factions in there and they mix as iron would mix with clay they don't really adhere to one another and so it's a fragile unstable union and uh, the future kingdom uh, appears to be partly strong because of the iron but it's partly breakable because of the clay and verse 44 it says and in the days of those kings which kings well not the kingdoms that we've looked at so far Babylon, uh, Persia, Greece, and so on. No, these are, these are kings. These are human rulers that will be a part of this conglomeration represented by the ten toes, the ten horns, future rulers. He goes on to say, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. What kingdom is this? In your notes, kingdom number five. The stone cut without human hands, my friends, is Christ himself. Christ himself. The final world kingdom. Christ is pictured as a stone. Have we seen Christ pictured in such a way before? 
as a rock? Yes, we have. Psalm 95, 1, God is pictured as a rock. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8, speaks of Christ. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So this no human hand, so this stone is cut by no human hand. What What in the world does that mean? Well, in your notes, no human hand refers to Christ's divinity. Anybody create Christ? Is he created? No. No. He is the self-existent one. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would make these statements, and he would start with the words, I am. I am. And whenever he would say, I am, you know, he told, he told the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. They knew what he meant. That was a claim to deity. Nobody made him. He wasn't created. He's not of man. He was born of a virgin. This is not some man-made stone. He's divine. He's not a human construct. Has this kingdom come yet? Huh, some scholars say yeah. Some, they look at this, they go, oh, this kingdom is a past event. No, this kingdom has already come. He came. Jesus came. His empire is the church. That's what they say. They point out that the church, the church brought down the Roman Empire, which I'm not really sure if that's true. You know, I kind of understand the reasoning. They're not technically right about that. The Roman Empire lived a long time after the establishment of the church. Uh, I would say it was internal decay and political conditions that led to the fall of Rome, but they didn't die out till the 5th century. That's a long time. Uh, for a kingdom to shatter. How long does it take for a stone to break up a statue? Five centuries. I don't think so. And so we are still living in the time of the Gentiles because the stone cut by no human hand has not yet come to take out the world empires. Uh, we are not living in a messianic... Is he the Messiah? He's the Messiah, right? So he, he's not a Gentile king. He's a messianic king. He's a Jewish king. So in light of that, folks, when we talk about this kingdom that is yet to come, this kingdom without end, what dispensation, if you recall those ages, which of those ages is initiated in your notes here in verses 44 to 45? It's the kingdom. Age. If you refer back to your notes from last week, the kingdom age, a.k.a. the millennial age, the millennial reign of Christ, okay? Scripture says that the millennium, what does millennium mean? It means a thousand years. It's going to last a thousand years. You say, well, I thought this is a kingdom that, 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 that does not end. And in your notes, that's true. This kingdom will last forever. You understand that the kingdom will outlast the age. It's not an age that will last forever. It's a kingdom that will last 
forever. So you've got a kingdom age that's going to run a thousand years, and at the end of that age, the kingdom keeps going into the eternal state. Luke 1, 32 says he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I love that. Can we all just say that? Say, there will be no end. Man, is that good to know? I'm tired of these temporary debacles that we call governments. I'm ready to be in a perfect government, and it's going to be not run by people. Amen? It's going to be run by a, a timeless king who is righteous, who is above all, who is above all. And so Daniel goes on. And we read that, that there's going to be, uh, excuse me, let, me, let me read to you from, uh, from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. This is a future kingdom that is literal. It's a kingdom in which uh, the king will reign in a very specific geographic place. The faithful city, Jerusalem. Jesus will reign physically from Jerusalem. Zechariah says, On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. This is a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will be physical. And yet, how many of you have heard people talk about the kingdom today? Is the kingdom today? In a sense it is. In a sense it is. In the sense that we are subjects of the kingdom. Okay? We are. We are subjects of an eternal kingdom. We're here now. But the government of that kingdom is not here. Oh, God, Christ is in complete control. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But he is not physically reigning from Jerusalem right now, as one day he is prophesied to do. And so the kingdom is here in a sense that the subjects are. You and I. And we've got a job to do. We've, our job is to recruit more subjects. We've got to recruit some more subjects for the coming kingdom. And so in your notes, in a, in a spiritual sense, believers are present subjects of a coming kingdom that will replace all previous human kingdoms in a literal sense. You understand? When's that going to happen? Well, it's not going to happen until something else happens. Jesus promised that Israel would not experience the Messiah's kingdom until they recognize the Messiah. Here's what Matthew 23 says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is words of Christ. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord What's got to happen? During that seven-year tribulation, the Jews are going to turn to their Messiah. Is, is, is God done with Israel? Not by a long shot. Not ever. There will come a day when the greatest revival in human history will occur. And Israel, in mass, will turn back to their Messiah. They will look upon him. And they will, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn him, Scripture says, as one mourns an only son, and they will return. And then the stage will be set 
for the final return of Christ to establish his kingdom. So back in Daniel 2, as we wrap it up, verse 45, after all this, here's the dream, here's the interpretation. He says, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Now you remember that I had you underline the word Aramaic. Remember that? And I had you jot down off to the side there, Daniel 7.28. Daniel 7.28. Here's why that is significant, okay? If you recall, the Old Testament is written largely in Hebrew. I mean, pretty much any, any Old Testament passage is going to be in Hebrew. This entire section that began in Daniel chapter 2, verse 4... And it goes all the way to Daniel 7.28. That entire section is written, not in Hebrew, but in Aramaic. Aramaic. Now, why is that significant? In your notes. Hebrew is the language of the Jews. Aramaic was the most common language for the Gentile world. And so you've got this prophecy about the times of the Gentiles, all of the Gentile global empires that subjugated Israel. And that entire prophecy, and it goes on from what we just read, it is 100% written in Aramaic. I think that, I just think that's very, very interesting. I got one last question. Daniel's at the very beginning. Of, of this captivity in Babylon. Uh, the times of the Gentiles that Jesus refers to is going to last over 2,500 years. Well over. I mean, it's going to be at least 2,500 years. It's going to be more than that, right? Why reveal the prophecy at the very beginning? And the answer is, in your notes, to give his people hope. To give his people Folks, this is why, this is one of the main reasons that we study prophecy is so that we have hope. When, when Paul was approached by the Thessalonian church, they were worried because some of their loved ones had died that were believers, and they knew from the Old Testament, Christ is coming back. He's going to establish his kingdom. What about our loved ones? And he said, I don't want you to mourn as those who have no hope. And so we study prophecy so that we would have hope. The entire Christian life is predicated on the fulfillment of God's promise that one day he's going to make good on what he said he would do for those who believe in him to raise us up incorruptible. And I hope that this is an encouragement to you tonight. We're going to continue on next week. I'm going to show you another amazing prophecy from Daniel. And it's only going to get more and more intense. So don't miss out on a Wednesday. All right. Lord, I pray your blessing upon this group right here. Thank you for your, uh, your timeless word. And we give you praise and honor and glory for from you all rulers are raised up and deposed. And we give you that honor tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.